What's up, sports fans? My name is Lucas Weiss, host of the Weiss Sports Chronicles podcast on the Blue Wire Hustle Network. It's the Tokyo 2020 Review Show. The, to- the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, they're in the books. The 32nd Olympiad is closed. And who better to bring on to count down our top 10 moments of the games? None other than Ben Steiner. Ben, welcome to the pod. Your fourth appearance on the pod. But man, we, this off the top, full disclosure, both you and I worked for CBC Sports during the Olympics, behind the scenes in doing production assistant stuff, providing wall-to-wall coverage, man. Just before we get into the top 10 moments, how are you feeling? And just a big picture of what we just witnessed these last two weeks uh, in Tokyo. Well, I don't know if it was uh, the same for you, but when the flame went out this morning uh, and this evening in Tokyo, it was over. Two weeks of staying up, taking sleep when I can. If I had 30 minutes, I slept for 10 minutes. Maybe I could get a couple hours of sleep at some point during the day. But that was over. Suddenly, this two-week rush of covering 371 Canadian athletes had ended. It was a flood of moments, of medals, of tears, of just great times in Tokyo, or for us in Tokyo, Toronto. And it just ended. The flame goes out and it's all over, right? And that's the the sort of instant flick of the switch of the Olympics. It's always like that. And I remember in 2010 when I was actually at the opening ceremony and then watched the closing ceremony on television, it's just a flip of a switch. It really is. That's all the Olympic flame is, is just an an on and off switch in the stadium. And just like that, the games were over, a beautiful closing ceremony in Tokyo. Uh, And then it just, I wouldn't say we feel lost, but it's just weird not to be watching the Olympics. We're recording this on Sunday night and it's 7.46 p.m. It's not 8.46 a.m. We're not just getting up to start our day in Tokyo, Toronto. It's all over. But man, what what a fantastic two weeks. And we've got our top 10 moments for both of us. And just going through some of the moments and stories of these last two weeks and 18 days, it's just been an incredible time, not only for Canadian athletes, but athletes around the world and the world as a whole. No doubt. And look, I think every Olympics has special moments. I think for me, you know, some Olympics stay with me more than others. I think the fact that this is the first Olympics that I've sort of worked in some sort of a professional capacity for, for an organization, it'll certainly stay with me a lot more. But I just also think too, Ben, like I think back to April 2020 and how the Canadian Olympic Committee really led the charge to pull the athletes out of Tokyo for the safety, the health and safety, the well-being of the athletes, you know, as we were really in the eye of the global pandemic. And to think that then over a year later, uh, the games could be staged, you know, albeit, I mean, it, it, you know, it was it was rocky at first about, about whether it was going to, you know, get off the ground, but it, it eventually did. And I think it was what happened on the field of play that won Canadians over and, and citizens around the world, uh, big countries, small countries, you name it, we covered it. And I think that was what was so beautiful about these games was that, look, it'll always be sort of remembered as the pandemic games. I, I just think that's 
the reality, just given the fact it was empty stadiums and health and safety protocols and all that stuff. But the moments on the field to play in the sports, those memories will live on forever. And it was historical games for Team Canada. The best ever games for Team Canada at a non-boycotted games. Of course, 1984, the Russians weren't there. And technically, the Russians weren't there this time either. But it wasn't a boycotted games. And Team Canada put up 24 medals, seven golden moments. It's never been better at a non-boycotted games. It was incredible. But yes, it was a pandemic games. Canada led the way last year, followed by Australia and pulling out of the Tokyo Olympics. And that forced the IOC to postpone the games a year. And I think it's great that we got them this year. I know that there was a lot of uh, difficulties getting it off the ground, a lot of concerns, especially in Japan, and a lot of pushback against the Olympic movement from having these Tokyo 2020 games. But I think at the end of it all, it was worth it. And if you take a look at the COVID numbers, just to Team Canada, not a single positive among 371 athletes and over 800 uh, people in the delegation. That's impressive. Whether that's down to vaccines, or health and safety protocols that were there in Tokyo, it worked. And that's impressive because the IOC and Team Canada and a bunch of countries promised to the Japanese people that this was going to be a safe games. And at the end of the day, it was. Yes, there were a few hiccups along the way. Yes, the Australians stole the Canadian moose and had a party. And maybe there were a few issues in the Athletes' Village. But in the grand scheme of things, it actually was a pretty safe games and a successful games at that. Uh, Yes, there was pushback. But there was always pushback at the start of an Olympic Games. Yes, this was the pandemic pushback, but whether it's spending too much money, whether it's human rights, there is always something at the beginning of the Olympic Games that makes people go up in arms. Oh my God, these games are not going to work. It's going to be a disaster. And then the flame gets lit. The athletes march into the stadium. The competition starts the next day. And suddenly that all fades into the background. It's just background noise. And suddenly medals are awarded the pride of nations come out, the anthems are played around arenas and stadiums. And it's just amazing moments all around. And I think the majority of people who are worried pre pre Olympic games end up loving it by day two or three. Um, and the noise just sort of fades into the background. So let's get into our respective top tens. I know we spoke off the air that there's not much overlap, which is I think quite great because I think it, it shows that, you know, there are just so many moments and, and, and to rank them and, and to get them into 10 is a very difficult exercise because there are so many incredible moments from these games. I think from for me, I think for both of us, we're going to definitely have a lot of Canadian moments for both Canadians, which is which is understandable. And that's terrific. I did throw in some moments from from different uh, countries around the world, just given some of the events that I covered. Uh, that, that really stuck with me stuck with me as well. Ben, why don't you maybe start off with your number 10, but maybe first just how you sort of came about your list. So my list sort of came about as, as you said, it's very Canadian heavy and Canadian based because that was the stories that we were working on. That were the stories, uh, those were the stories that we were being fed here in Canada. Um, but I also think that Canada had an exceptional Olympic Games. They finished 11th in the medal standing, seven gold, 24 medals, best ever non-boycotted games since, uh, I think it was Barcelona, 1992. Yeah. In terms of gold, gold medals, they matched the, the seven, seven total. Uh, so it, very impressive by Team Canada. And I think that's why we have so many moments from them. And I do too. And I guess I can start with my 10th moment. And that's going to be the success of the Stafford sisters 
in track and field, Gabriella Debu Stafford and Lucia Stafford. Seeing two siblings make the Olympic Games and both almost make the final, one actually make the final, that's magnificent. Can you imagine the atmosphere in their house, the atmosphere amongst their friends of them making and taking shots at Olympic medals? Two sisters, they grew up together. Gabriella Debu Stafford is a little older. She has a little more experience. She made the final. I think she came seventh uh, in, in her event. And then Lucia Stafford, she just graduated from the University of Toronto last year. She was the OUA Female Athlete of the Year, nominated for the U Sports Athlete of the Year. That went to Kelsey Wog, who impressed in the pool uh, with a couple medals herself. But the Stafford sisters just blew me away. And that family connection is something that I think really stands out about the Olympic Games. And it's very rare that you see two sisters, two siblings make such a run. I know in the in the Winter Games, of course, we have the Defour La Pointe sisters uh, in, in ski moguls and freestyle skiing but it hasn't really been something that we've seen in the summer games. And I thought that was quite magical. It's just unfortunate both of them didn't end up on the podium. No, that's a great story. And, and it's always, uh, it always does my heart good to see uh, U of T alum uh, shining on the, uh, on the Olympic stage. And yes, that, that family connection is really special and, and really rare. And I, and I think that's, uh, that's meant to be celebrated. My number 10 is an event that I worked uh, during, you know, week one of the games. And it was weight, women's weightlifting. Uh, it was one of the first uh, weightlifting events. And, you know, weightlifting, I, I, I got to be honest, you know, I'll, I, I would have tuned in once every four years during the Olympics. It's one of the, the original sports, actually, of of uh, the original Olympics in Athens was weightlifting. And look, I mean, you know, you're working the event and, and, and you see what happens, but then Heidel and Diaz from the Philippines um, really just uh, stole the show. Um, and you can see with this photo right there, when she lifted the final weight and it was recognized that she was going to win gold. The emotions on her face were so genuine, so pure. And, and Ben, you and I watched a lot of sports, and sometimes that genuineness isn't there off sometimes, particularly with professional athletes, just because it's, you know, they're making lots of money and they've already been at that stage before, so it's not as genuine. But to see Heidel and Diaz, you know, the tears flowing down her face, she won a Philippines' first ever gold medal at you know in weightlifting at these summer games. It was just phenomenal. And like and the emotions continued as she got her medal, her gold medal. And 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 I remember tweeting that out and just and it it exploded. And it was early in the morning. Clearly, a lot of Filipinos were tuning in. And it just goes to show you, Ben, that look, we you know we we love you know seeing the big countries like Canada, United States, Great Britain do very well. But the Olympics too are about some of the smaller nations and, and those stories of those athletes to become heroes for life in that country. And what Highland Diaz did in, in weightlifting, I'll never forget. Just the just just the genuine emotion that she showed in, in winning that gold medal. It, it was truly magical. 
And of course, the Philippines went on to have their most successful Olympic Games in their history. It was incredible what they were able to do in the boxing ring uh, and in weightlifting. The Philippines is not a country that you often think of of having success on the global stage in athletics, but that's exactly what they did in Tokyo. And I think that's so impressive. You can look at other countries uh, as well. Fiji had uh, picked up two medals. They picked up a, a women's rugby and men's rugby. Of course, men's rugby defending their gold medal that they captured in, in Rio five years ago and women's rugby picking up the first women's medal in Fijian history. That's incredible. The, the people from Bahama impressed on the track. It's always so cool to see these small countries having such success. Uh, and then, of course, it, it's nice to see the big countries having success as well. But there's only so much you can get excited when the U.S. win 100 plus medals. You're not going to get everybody in the United States completely jumping up and getting super hyped about every single medal, right? They win as many gold medals, more gold medals than some countries win medals, period, in, in their history and at one games. And so if you compare the big countries like the U.S., like the Great Britons, like even the Canada's to these small countries, the, the fervor and the atmosphere around these athletes is just something else. And it, it's amazing what the Philippines did. It's amazing what Fiji did. Um, and it's really something that I think that those athletes will definitely remember for the rest of their lives. But the, the countries will remember for the rest of their lives. I think in Canada, the closest maybe you can get to those moments is either one moment that I know we both have coming up in a little bit. Uh, or Alex Bilodeau winning the first gold right. on home soil in Canada. Alex Bilodeau is a freestyle skier. You probably can't name many other freestyle skiers, but you sure. can name Alex Bilodeau. And I can bet you that if you walked around downtown Toronto and asked people who Alex Bilodeau was, you'd probably get about a 50-50 reception of knowing who he is. He's a hero in this country. He won the first gold medal on home soil, home snow, if we're being specific. <laughs> and uh, And... The, these athletes will go back to their home countries and just be heroes. So that's very cool to see because their lives were changed over these last two weeks and they'll never go back to the people they were before. They are national heroes in their countries. One other country I'll mention, Ben, San Marino. They only have a population of 33,000 and they won three medals. So again, like they only sent a delegation of five athletes, three the athletes uh, won medals. So, so again, it, it just goes to show you uh, the power of those stories for, from smaller countries. I'll go ahead with my number nine. And, and my number nine is Olympic golf. Um, Olympic golf really had its moment for, for, for the sport of golf. Look, there are sports at the Olympics that are hanging by a threat whether or not they're going to continue or not. Wait, Golf, me. of course, had the announcement in 2009 that it would be at the Olympics in 2016. But there's no guarantee, right? There's no guarantee. And, and golf is a popular sport around the world. But still, there was no guarantee it was going to work. And look, 2016, Rio de Janeiro, it's not a big golfing nation. But you had top guys like Justin Rose. Henrik Stenz and Matt Kuchar get medals. But this Tokyo Games for golf was just so huge. Now, it didn't start off great. I know John Rahm tested positive for COVID. Bryson DeChambeau had to pull out because of COVID. There were a lot of top golfers who did not go over to Tokyo because they, for whatever reasons, health and safety, the condensed schedule, all that stuff. So there was a little bit of uh, animosity or or doubt, if you will, 
coming into the Olympic golf competition, but the men's golf competition just started things off, and boy, was it epic. And it, it helped that Hideki Matsuyama, 2021 Masters champion, on home soil from Japan, was in contention down the stretch to try to get a medal. He unfortunately finished fourth, but still that was just huge in terms of getting a lot of the volunteers at the golf course to watch the event. But, I mean, Xander Shoffley, career-defining moment, holding off a, a an avalanche of golfers who were chasing them that day, including Rory Sabatini, who shoots a 61 out of nowhere to just to launch himself into contention. But then you had a seven-way playoff for bronze. And Ben, that's rare. Like most of the time you have a bronze medal game or you just finished third, you're the bronze medalist. But nope, in golf, if you're tied for third, you're playing a playoff for that medal. And Rory McIlroy said it best, I hadn't played so hard for third place in my life. And that's what he did um, in that seven-way playoff. And it was C.T. Pan from Chinese Taipei who was able to get that bronze medal. And then the week after, the women's competition was equally as great. World number one, Nelly Korda gets the gold medal, adding to her great season. You, of course, had Mona Nami from Japan on her home soil, winning the silver medal. And, of course, you had defeating Lydia Ko in a playoff. And Lydia Ko gets bronze, and she was you know, overcome with emotion as well, dedicating that bronze medal to her grandmother. So, for golf, it was huge for this game to, to prove to the world that Olympic golf can work. I would like to see maybe a team format in golf, but stroke play golf worked at these Olympics. And when you look at Paris, it hosted a Ryder Cup. So that's going to be Olympics. LA in 2028, that's a huge location in the United States for golf. So I think Olympic golf is in a very good place. I think it'll stem back from the success in Tokyo. I, I think that it will as well. I mean, golf, it's one of those sports that is very popular in the professional ranks. And of course, the professionals, most of them do go to the Olympics. Of course, Bryson DeChambeau uh, and a couple others had to pull out because of health and safety reasons. But we still saw Rory McIlroy on the course. We've seen other star players take on the Olympic golf course in the past. But with these sports where it's so professional, we see it in tennis. People don't necessarily care about the Olympics because the money's not there in the Olympics. Unfortunately, you're not getting millions of dollars for winning a gold medal. You're getting that if you win the U S open and U S opens in a few weeks, right? I mean, the, the national bank open formerly the Rogers cup is just starting up now in Toronto and Montreal. And you're going to get more money winning that than you are the Olympics. But one of the things about tennis that sort of stands out to me is how important some of the players take it and some don't. Um, Felix Ojeali-Asim of Canada, he said on the Players Own Voice podcast that it was his dream to play in the Olympics. And when it came up that the Olympics was a potential possibility for him, there was not even a moment of doubt that he was not going to go. Whereas there's when you look at some of the top guys, and I think Djokovic was there physically, I don't know whether he was there much mentally, um, but some of those top guys aren't necessarily going. But it's great to see that the Canadians at least are dedicated to going to these games and representing the country. Um, and to see golf in that sort of same realm with a lot of the top players there and playing for 
a seven weights playing for a bronze medal. That was epic. I think that's definitely one of the moments of the games. I don't have it on my list. It was so hard to cut down to a top 10, but definitely a moment of the games. And I think that was some of the most entertaining TV golf that anybody has ever seen. Because of course, in if you look at golf in the US, yes, you have some great golf happening in the US, but you also have like the match where they put Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and stuff and, into, into golf moments and uh, try and create something of it. But this was purely organic and they were fighting for an Olympic medal. And when you look at Rory McIlroy, he's from Ireland. Ireland doesn't have tremendous success at the Olympics. So he was going to become a national hero if he had captured that bronze medal. Um, of course, he is already a national hero for what he's done in the golf world, but it just would have been brought to another level if he had a medal around his neck. Anyways, golf, great moment, but I'll move on to my number nine moment. And that's going to be the Canadian women capturing gold in the women's eights rowing for the first time since 1992. Now, 1992 is a year that we're hearing a whole lot about here in Tokyo 2020 and 2021, because 1992 was the last time that Canada had any sort of success that parallels what they've done in Japan this, this year, this time around. And the last time they won gold, that was in Barcelona in 1992. The chef de mission, Marty, uh, Marty McBean for Tokyo 2020, was in that boat. And of course, Kathleen Heddle, who was also in that boat, passed away earlier this year. And that boat, the women's eights, goes and wins the Olympic gold medal. That's just a tremendous story all around. Shout out to Kristen Kitt, uh, who's a former UBC rower, and she won a gold medal with that team. It's just amazing that everything sort of fit. And of course, Marnie McBean was there with her drum, seeing the, the Canadian women's eights cross that finish line. And rowing is one of those classic events of the games. And Canada used to be a superpower at it. You can go back to the 90s and Canada was winning a ton of gold medals in rowing and it hadn't won this event since 1992 and it comes away with a gold medal when Marty McBean is the chef de mission in the pandemic games. It's just a tremendous moment uh, for rowing in this country and I think sport in this country as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I actually had it a bit higher, Ben. I mean, it, it, it for me, like, was um, massive. Like, like just, wow. just that backstory of, of, uh, of of Marty McBean and, and just I think the emotion of, of of the athletes and just seeing how they you know use that moment of Marty McBean and and the legacy she created to be inspired to create their own history and, and I think that's very powerful and when we see that often in in sports where the past shapes the present shapes the future. And, and, and that's certainly this example where, where where a lot of these women grew up seeing that gold and probably got into rowing because of Marty McBean and, and Kathleen Heddle. So for for me that 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 was really awesome and and, and just uh, a fantastic moment of the games, which it actually was a little bit higher for me just because it, it just you know had, had that impact. But uh, but you're right, definitely an incredible gold medal accomplishment for Canada. And another incredible gold medal accomplishment is sliding in at my eighth spot as well. And I'll go to my eighth spot now. Damien Warner, Canada's flag bearer in the closing ceremonies. He captured the gold medal in the men's decathlon and scored above 9,000 points in the men's decathlon. Now, if you asked me before the Tokyo 2020 games whether 9,000 points was a good score in the men's decathlon, honestly, I didn't really know. I didn't know much about decathlon and how you score it. But looking at his achievement over the last few days, over the last few weeks, and what he's done, it's incredible. And the fact that he's a Canadian from London, Ontario, 
who trains in the arena of the Western Mustangs men's and women's hockey teams. That's just awesome. Of course, I'm a big U-Sports guy. There's U-Sports teams practicing on the hockey rink and Damian Warner, the world's best athlete, running around uh, the track, jumping over the, the high jump, jumping into the long jump. It's just tremendous exactly what he's done in Tokyo. Uh, and I know he was also on the Player's Own Voice podcast with Anastasia Busis, and he was saying that because of some of his results in Tokyo and over the past little while, he might actually attempt some single events. If you take a look at his 100 meters, his 100 meters would have gotten him into the semifinals in the proper 100 meters. So why can't he go run 100 meters and maybe cash in some Diamond League prize money? That'd be pretty cool uh, to see Damian Warner take on actual single events after becoming so good at all 10. But how much talent and effort and training does it take to become good at one sport? How much does Andre de Grasse put in to just running fast, running fast around a bend or running fast in a straight line? It's amazing how much effort he puts in, amazing how much effort every single Olympic athlete puts in to get to the level of an Olympic podium or even an Olympic start. But to be good enough at 10 of them, to compete not only with the people in in the 10 of them, but to be good enough to compete with people outside of the 10 of them and who train only on their sole events, that's, that's incredible. There's no doubt that this guy was going to be the closing ceremony flag bearer. He is the best athlete in the world. He can throw, he can run, he can jump. There's nothing that this guy can't do. I mean, maybe maybe if he goes on the Canadian men's soccer team as an overage player, maybe they qualify for the Olympics and, and join the women on the podium. But it's just incredible to me what Damien Warner was able to do. And of course, he's had Olympic success before, but gold medal is just an, it's another level. He is going to be a household name in this country for years to come. Yeah, and like, uh, like Rowan Eats, uh, Damien Warner is a little bit higher on my list, so, so I'll um, I'll save my bit on Damien for for a little bit, uh, a little bit. I'll get to my number eight right now, and, and that is Canada Judo. Um, judo again, it, it, it was one of those events. Didn't know much about coming into this. I mean, I, I knew it was an Olympic sport, but didn't know much about. But those couple of nights, early morning here in Canada watching Catherine Bochum and Picard and Je Jessica Klimke and what they were able to do to capture bronze that was sensational and judo is this like crazy great sport it's hard to really describe it's a lot of physical strength obviously it's a lot of mental strength too then you got this thing called the golden score, which is technically like overtime, but only in judo. And then afterwards, they, they bow to each other, the ultimate sign of respect. And, and to me, what, what Boshin and Picard and Jessica Klimke did, that was awesome. You know, very, you know, a, a real defining moment in, in week one of the games for Canada. And I think, again, just showing that, look, I mean, the big sports like swimming, soccer, track and field, they, they, they get medals for, for Canada. But this is a sport in judo where maybe there's a young girl watching this Olympics and saying to herself, like, I want to, you know, I want to be a judoka. And, and seeing Boshman Picard and Klimke do what they did and show that, you know, those feats of strength, what was truly impressive. So that's, that was my number eight moment because, again, Judo was a sport didn't know much about coming in, but it's going to be one of the sports that I watch in future Summer Olympics. 
because of what Bozeman, Picard, and Klim Kate did. And I think you, you can't forget what Shady Alnahas did as well on the men's side. He came fourth or fifth, it might have been. He lost in one of the bronze medal games. Of course, the interesting thing about judo is there's a gold medal, a silver medal. We're used to that, one each, but then two bronze medals. Uh, and there's two bronze medal games. And uh, Shady Alnahas lost one of those games, but he made a tremendous run in the men's competition as well. Judo is one of those sports that I had never even really followed, heard of. I didn't really know about the athletes before they started the Olympics. And that's a fault on me. I should have done that research beforehand. But if you take a look at some of the medal projections for Canada prior to the Olympics, most notably from Grace Note, Canada was actually projected to win the judo. Jessica Klimkett, she had won world championships and she was projected to win the gold medal. And so it actually wasn't entirely a surprise, even though it did take Canada a little off guard that these medals were coming in a sport that nobody really followed or knew about. Um, but I had some, some great interactions with the people at Judo Canada, learning about their sport and helping them out a little bit. Uh, and I know you did as well. So it's impressive to see Canada having success in a sport that maybe isn't as accessible uh, or as, as, as much used to in Canada. Um, because you can, everybody swims, everybody swims in, in elementary school. And if you're good at it, maybe you swim race, you make the swim team and maybe you do something in the sport. Uh, everybody plays soccer at some point. We all played Timbit soccer at some point. Right. Um, but how do you get into judo? How do you rowing to a lesser extent? How do you get into that? Um, and so it's just impressive to see Canada having success in these sports that are sort of out of the mainstream and really fit sort of the bill of the Olympic fandom, because you don't watch diving outside of the Olympics. It's unfortunate, but you don't. You don't watch judo outside of the Olympics. It's unfortunate, but you don't. But Canada has success in those two sports, and I think that's quite impressive. I'm Ben, number seven. Number seven for me is going to be the Japanese baseball team. Because if you take a look at baseball and softball in these Olympic Games, it hadn't been in the Olympic program since 2008 in Beijing. It comes back in 2020, 2021, if we, if we want to be specific. Uh, and it was brought back because of J Japan people's fandom about baseball. It is the biggest sport in that country. This sport has tremendous, tremendous support throughout Japan. And I took a trip to Japan uh, in 2016, and I went to a few baseball games, and I've never seen an atmosphere like that in North America. I've been to five or six Major League Baseball stadiums in North America. And I've never, ever seen an atmosphere like that. In North America, you're getting a let's go Blue Jays. But here it's balloons at the seventh inning. It's chants like a soccer match. It's just so amazing, the fan support for baseball in Japan. And to see them have that success at the Olympic level, to capture the gold medal, that's just tremendous to me. Because there's not many moments that can parallel Crosby scoring the golden goal at Vancouver 2010 and winning that on home soil. But I really do think that the Japanese baseball team came as close as they possibly can to doing that. Uh, and I think if there were fans in that stadium, man, the world would have been able to see what Japanese baseball is all about because it's amazing. And beating the Americans too. I mean, I mean, look, any opponent for gold would have been huge. But look, I mean, you know, the next, you know, arguably the next big country would have, you know, would be USA. And and so so for 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 Japan to do that. That's probably going to be one of the medals, you know, like those baseball players will live in lore. Like you said, Ben, like 
Sidney Crosby does, Ryan Getzlaff does, Joe Thornton does on that Vancouver 2010 team, right? Just because of how big baseball is. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was one of the last events of the Olympics too. So I think that also sort of, I, I'm sure there was this buildup in Japan to, to see what they could, you know, accomplish on the diamond and uh, truly impressive. And, and, and here's hoping that um, more success to come. But you can't be winning on home soil. I mean, wherever, you know, if Japan wins another gold again, I mean, this is what they're going to remember forever. And, and that's uh, truly special. But for my number seven, it's not quite baseball, but very similar. It's softball, Canada softball, winning its first ever Olympic medal. And, and Ben, you just alluded to it. Look, softball. Is a, is a sport right now where 2008 was the last time Beijing. And you talk to a lot of these Canada softball women athletes, and, and, and that was fueling them. Like, like the, the disappointment there, the fact that it wasn't in 2012, wasn't in 2016, it really allowed them to, uh, you know, really have that motivation to try to get on the podium here in Tokyo. And also the fact that. There's no guarantee of when softball is coming back. And we can have a whole podcast on that, Ben, because, boy, I, I, I thoroughly disagree. I think softball at this Olympics proved, and you asked the coaches, you asked the players, it proved that it belonged on the Olympic stage. And, and what Canada did in that bronze medal game, they were down in that game. And softball is a game where, you know, rallies can't happen, but it is a goal. It is, it is for a medal. So, so, so the pressure ramps up, and, and for Canada to show the calmness under pressure, and to be able to to raise their level of play to come back and capture that bronze medal again, it was one of those stories early in the games, but it, it stuck with me just because of the the emotion of the women on that diamond and how much this moment meant to them, but also afterward talking about why softball belongs in the Olympics. So, so good for Canada softball for raising that awareness. And, and that's my number seven moment because boy, what a team accomplishment to get first ever medal for Canada in softball. And it comes in Tokyo. And, and the thing about softball as well, you take a look at this Canadian team and it was back in 2019 in Surrey, British Columbia at softball city that they actually punched their ticket to Tokyo. How much has the world been through since 2019? This is a different world that we're living in from the moment that they punched their ticket to Tokyo. They were expecting to be playing in Tokyo in six months. Well, it's been a year and six months. The team has changed. The people have changed. There's been tremendous loss, tremendous stress around the world. And they were able to regroup, come together to play their first games since that Olympic qualifying tournament in the Olympics. And they come away with the bronze medal. That's, that's tremendous. They came very close to the, the gold medal as well and playing for that uh, against the U.S. in a, a somewhat pseudo semifinal uh, in the group stage. But to see them come around and come home with a medal on their neck, uh, we know the struggles that Sarah Grunwagen went through as well. To see the dominance that she put on the mound in, in women's softball, just tremendous to see the, this Canadian team have great success. And I know uh, one person that I would want to shout out is Steve Ewan. He was there when they qualified in in surrey and to make that trip from surrey in 2019 to tokyo 2020 in 2021 and to come home with the bronze medal it's just tremendous um with that 
I think I will go to my, I guess we're on seven now. Uh, and that's going to be uh, Aaron Brown. Aaron Brown did not win a medal. Aaron Brown finished outside of the podium. He raced in the 100-meter final and was alongside Andre de Grasse. Of course, all of the headlines went to Andre de Grasse. Andre de Grasse came away with a silver medal. He then came away with a, a gold medal in the 200 meters and then a, another medal as well. So there's just so much success from Andre de Grasse, bronze medal, sorry, in the, in the, um, in the 100 meters. But Aaron Brown, when he finished his race, he was having an interview with the CBC reporter on the side and he pulled off his bib and his bib didn't just have under a bib. I think I have a photo of it in here. There we go. It had a picture of his wife and his kid. And he said that the only thing that matters to him is it making those two people proud. And if they're proud of him, then he's had success at these Olympic games. It didn't matter about a medal. It didn't matter about what thir 37 million other people thought of his race. It mattered about those two people. Those two people are so special in his life that that's all he was running for. And I, I think that's tremendous. I know that sometimes family can be a little stretched too thin and that story can be stretched a little much, but to have a picture of them under his bib, that's just amazing. And I would have loved to see if he had won a medal, what his celebration would have been, but to not only just have two Canadians in the final of the hundred meters, but to have one with such dedication to his family who was just happy to finish that high and make his family proud. I think that's pretty amazing. It is. Now, one thing I will say is I think we're on number six. <laughs> so, so I'm keeping track, but, but maybe I'm wrong, but, uh, but, but maybe I'm wrong. But the one thing I will You're say right. Right. <laughs> is that Brown did win bronze in the four by 100 meter relay. So he does have a medal for, for, the, for the team, not the, uh, but not the individual, which, uh, not the individual, which, yeah. but, um, but, but still, an, an incredible accomplishment for for uh, for Aaron Brown, and uh, you know, really, really great story, which uh, which you told just there. But and of course, if you look back at sort of the timeline of the Olympics, that moment of the the bib and taking that off and being proud of his performance in the hundred meters and being proud for his family, that came before he captured the medal in the four by one. Uh, and of course, if it wasn't for Andre Degrasse either. He's not getting that medal in the four by one because when Andre DeGrasse got the baton at at the uh, the anchor leg of that race, Canada was in fifth place, and Andre DeGrasse is a gold medalist in the two hundred meters, and he was able to string together a very fast hundred meters in the four by one hundred and brought Canada back to the podium and gave Aaron Brown uh, and his other teammates an Olympic medal. For sure, for sure, repping Toronto proud, Aaron Brown. Number six for me is something that you already said, Ben, um, and it was one of the ones I had higher on my list. Canada rowing eights gold. Um, I think we both talked about it. It was a it was a huge moment, and you know they're they're the women there. They were just so happy to get their gold medal. And the one thing I will add is just thinking back, like things have to be in such unison, right? I mean, you know, you know, there's so many different events there. There's you know, the, the double, you know, the pairs in rowing, then there's the kayak, then there's the canoe, and all of them have their different, um, you know, traits and attributes. But rowing eights, it's all about, you know, that unison and making sure everyone's in line. And I think that's what's so important and so crucial in, in, in getting to that podium is making sure that everyone's in that sync. So, 
it, it truly was a remarkable race. I remember, you know, I was out of my couch, you know, yelling at the TV to try to, you know, hold that, hold that position to get gold. But it was, uh, you know, truly a remarkable moment in the games and, and so happy for those women to get uh, the gold that they deserve. Yeah, I think that was just a, a remarkable moment. Of course, uh, Marty McBean being the chef de mission, we went over it a little bit earlier in the show, uh, but just everything lining up for Tokyo to have so many similarities to Barcelona and for that medal to stand at both Olympic Games, I think is pretty impressive. And uh, congratulations to that entire women's AIDS group because just impressive what they were able to do on the water at the Sea Forest Waterway. I'll move on to swimming as my number five. And, and, and I'm going to just bunch just the, the swimming program together because, wow, um, the Canadian women's swimmers, this was to me the story of week one of the games for Canada. And I think, again, context is so important here. 2016 was what was the was the sort of launch point for Canada swimming and, and the women's swimmers, particularly Penny Alexiak getting four medals, including a gold in Rio. And look, it, it, it's very well known. I mean that that Penny after that she became a star, and, and grappling with that was was challenging um, for her. And and she she admitted how she didn't really liked to swim and that every time she went to a big competition, her name would be called and it would be Olympic medalist and that pressure got to her. But then the pandemic happened and for a lot of those swimmers, life needed to change pretty quickly. Now Penny sort of stayed at, at, at the Toronto Swim Centre, but she had a really tight support system and really regained that motivation, what she had in 2016. I mean, Kylie Moss, former U of T, Varsity Blue, she had to switch coaches. Maggie McNeil had to switch coaches pretty quickly. So there was a lot of quick change because, let's face it, in Ontario, the restrictions were very heavy and it was just very difficult to find training time during, during the pandemic. So... This swimming program, though, despite all of those challenges, remained resilient. And we saw at the trials this starting to form again, where Penny Alexiak runs an incredibly fast time in the 100 free. Kylie Moss came back to that world-setting time. And it was the birth of Summer McIntosh onto the big swimming scene, 14 years old. We saw her beat Penny Alexiak at the trials. I know that Summer McIntosh didn't medal at these games, but my goodness, did she impress, barely getting, missing the podium in a few races. You can't, I mean, Maggie McNeil, of course, getting gold medal for Team Canada. Once again, London, Ontario, continue to have so much success at these games. Maggie McNeil getting the gold in the butterfly but I'll always remember that moment, Ben, the final relay and seeing Penny Alexiak, Maggie McNeil, Sydney Pickram, and Kylie Moss in the medley relay. And just how close those girls were and just how in sync they were and how they wanted to get the medal for not only themselves, but for their country. That propelled Penny Alexiak to become the most decorated Canadian Olympian of all time. 
Wow. And Sydney Pickram with the quote of the Olympics. Go watch that. It's truly a remarkable quote. But, um, yeah, just, just, just nothing more I could say just about Canadian swim, women's swimming. They were the story of week one. And once again, showing why, my goodness, women at these Olympics for Canada were just so successful. And a large part of that were the Canadian women swimmers. 18 of the 24 medals were won by Canadian uh, won by Canadians competing in women's sports. And I think that's incredibly amazing to see that contribution from the, the Canadians competing for those sports and women's events, because that's not really been seen before that much success from Canadian uh, Canadians competing for women's sports. So that's definitely impressive. And I think we have a lot more of those to come in our top five reasons or top five moments as well. Um, but one of my moments is actually going to be uh, Laurence vincent Uh She was in the women's canoeing. And women's canoeing had never been in the Olympic Games before. And that was a real burden on the sport because canoeing could only go so far without that Olympic goal. Because unlike golf, unlike tennis, unlike hockey, canoeing is not a sport that really has a big professional circuit outside of an Olympic goal. And so the women were competing for world championships and world cups, but they never had that goal or dream of an Olympic gold medal until Tokyo 2020. And it took a lot of effort. It took over 80 years for Canada and any women to be able to compete at these Olympic games in canoeing. But right at the front of the battle over the last several years was Laurence Vincent-Lapointe of Canada. And she comes away not with one medal, but with two medals, two silver medals from these Olympic games and from all the effort she put into not only training and staying at a silver medal level, that takes an exceptional amount of effort to, but to getting these women into the Olympic games takes an incredible amount of effort as well. So just very, very, very impressive from her. And I think that has to go down as one of the best stories of the Olympic games, even though it wasn't in sort of a mainstream sport and it was a sport that we don't really see all that often. And Olympic canoeing is not the same canoeing that you're doing at your cottage. Um, but what, what she was able to do to get the sport into the Olympic Games, and then not just to be there, but to be one of the best people in the sport, just very impressive from, from my point of view. The one moment that will always stick out for me was when Vincent and uh, Vincent Lapointe won. And after they won, like, Vincent Lapointe like, took a dip into the water then Vincent did as well it just felt uh very Canadian to do right when when, when you go and very very emblematic of what uh, canoe athletes would do is you know after you, you canoe you just take a dip and uh celebrate getting an Olympic medal but you're right I mean I that was later in the games it was sort of the dog days of the Olympics if you will but those events provide excitement and and, and you know following and skimming over social media people started you know tuning because it's what like once you watch it's pretty exciting it's sort of like cycling right i mean cycling sort sure, of underrated sure. not really um you know talked about a lot but it's actually really exciting when you watch it and and you saw a lot more people tune into the cycling as canadians won medals at the velodrome so yeah, I mean, I mean, Vincent, what Vincent Lapointe did, I mean, truly remarkable moment. Ben, do you want to get to your number four? We're counting down, yeah, final so, four. Exactly. My number four is actually going to be something that you mentioned already, and that's Penny Alexiak and the Canadian swim team. 
just so impressive what they were, were, were able to do. You take a look at the training situations that they had back in Canada. A lot of them are from Ontario and from the Toronto, Hamilton area and, and London as well. And in Ontario, there's been some of the world's strictest COVID measures. And so for a lot of the year, they weren't able to get into a pool. And if they were, it was under strict measures or it was only at the Olympic development pool. They couldn't just go to a pool that maybe they could get some easy training and they had to be in the Olympic atmosphere with that weight on their shoulders. And I can imagine from speaking to athletes as well, more on the winter side, when you're training on a, a course or an Olympic course or somewhere at like an athlete development center, there's always that weight of, are you doing this to win a gold medal? Are you doing enough? Are you lifting enough? Are you going fast enough? Are you pushing hard enough? Whereas if you're just having fun and you're just going swimming, there's not that, but it still benefits you as an athlete. Uh, and I know that that might not be, not have been something that the swimmers had this year. They did have a couple things that did help them. I know Kelsey Wog and um, blank on the name, uh, Kylie. Kylie Moss. I don't know. Kylie Moss. Yes. I don't know why I was blanking on Kylie Moss, one of the most successful swimmers in Canadian history. Uh, but they were both, they were, and Brent Hayden on the men's side and a few others as well. They were all swimming with the Toronto Titans of the International Swim League, a new professional swimming circuit. And while that is not drawing the, the eyes of the Olympics or the world championships, it's giving them an opportunity to not only make some money doing what they love and what they're good at, but to be able to swim against some of the world's best swimmers with some of the world's best swimmers in a professional atmosphere, in an exciting atmosphere. There's a team around it. It's modern. There's bright lights. There's music. It is not the sort of fuddy-duddy atmosphere that you get at the Olympic Games with the excitement, but it is just pure excitement. It's almost like rugby sevens. If you watch rugby sevens at the Olympics, it is not the same level of excitement and hoopla that you're getting when you watch the HSBC seven series. And so to have that opportunity for Kylie Moss, to have that opportunity for Brent Hayden, unfortunately, who didn't medal, uh, but is another great moment, and I can get to that in a second. Um, to have that opportunity is fantastic. And then also to have the opportunity at not only the University of Toronto, but to be able to train in Ontario, it's it's all around great. And you could go on and on about the Canadian swimmers. Kelsey Wog, she was the OUA, uh, or the U Sports Female Athlete of the Year, uh, alongside... Um, I'm just blanking on everything at this point in the podcast. Uh, apologies to all the viewers. Um, but she she was incredible with the University of Manitoba Bisons. Uh, and she gets a silver medal at the Olympics as well. So very impressive from her. Uh, and just everybody on the Canadian swim team. Brent Hayden, and that's one guy that I want to single out as well. Unfortunately, he didn't medal. But he's in his late 30s. He won a bronze medal at London 2012. One of the best Canadian swimmers ever. Not only on the men's side, but overall. And he was able to work his butt off and get to these Olympic Games. And he was able, he had to do it for another year because they got postponed. But the effort and drive that Brent Hayden showed, I think is admirable to everybody because he set a goal a few years ago to get back into swimming. And he completely fell in love with the sport again. And if you go watch his, his post-race interview from when he finished his Olympic Games, he was tearing up. He said that this was the best decision of his life and then he corrected himself and said it was the second best decision of his life, second only to, to asking his wife to marry him. So very impressive and very inspirational from Brent Hayden and the Canadian swim team, especially on the women's side. I'll just put a bow, put a bow on the swimming before heading to my number four, which is 
the Canadian women's swimmers, you know, they, they're on, you know, the international map right now. It's, it's basically like Australians, Americans, Canadians. Like those are sort of the three right now for, for, for women's swimming. But the Canadian men are coming. Like someone like Josh Leendo, we're going to be talking about him in three years from now when once swimming trials happen. So I really think that swimming in Paris 2024, that's going to be the banner Olympics for Canadian swimming. I, I just have a feeling because Alexiak's motivated, Kylie Moss is motivated, Summer McIntosh is coming through, through the pipeline, and then all those Canadian men as young Canadian men as well. So Canadian swimming has a bright future, and, and uh, three years from now, it's going to be awesome in uh, in Paris. But my number four is something that you already mentioned earlier, Ben, as well, and that's Damian Warner uh, winning, winning the decathlon. You uh, you know you know brilliantly mentioned how he you know trained during the lockdown um, in a hockey arena, and that was that was the story that that when Marty McBean during the media availability announcing that Damian Warner would be the closing ceremony flag bearer. That was the moment she pointed to as just sort of exemplifying the resilience that these athletes showcase during the global pandemic. But I think the one thing I'll add is this, those conditions in Tokyo were unbearable to the, to the normal person. Like it was 40 degree weather Celsius like just extreme, extreme heat. And for him to, you know, be able to go through those events so effectively, relying on different skills. And then in the 1500 meter, he started off slow, but then he had that final push to become just one of four athletes ever in the decathlon to get 4,000 points. It's just truly a remarkable feat. And, this was someone, remember, Damian Warner, he won bronze in this event in Rio 2016. But he said, I was happy with that, but I wanted more. Well, this was his golden moment. And it will be one that I will remember for quite some time. Because, man, a, a Canadian athlete winning the decathlon, becoming the greatest athlete in the world, is historical. It, it, it's completely historical. And there's some moments from these games that I know will send shivers and a tingly feeling throughout Canadians forever. And just talking about what Damien Warner has done, it it's tremendous. And it sends that sort of feeling through me, just talking about it, seeing him in this photo, Canadian flag wrapped around his back, that smile. He's got a swagger to it. The golden bib, later a gold medal, that tremendous Canadian singlet, just everything about it is amazing. The only thing missing is 70,000 screaming fans, but Damien Warner, from London, Ontario, trains in a U Sports hockey arena and is the best athlete in the world. And that's that's tremendous. Ben, what's your number three? Getting on to my number three, I'm going to go with, can we have two gold? Because Essa Barashim and Giomanco Tamberi shared the gold medal in the men's high jump. And I know a lot of people did not like this because what were they saying? They were saying that if you're doing this. Why can't you just say two gold if the penalty shootout goes too long in the, in the women's soccer? Well, it doesn't work like that. It's actually in the rules of world athletics that the competitors can decide for two gold if they just keep going in a jump off. And so they decided on two gold. That moment, we, of course, we saw Tim Barry, the, the umpire said, 
uh, we could do two gold. Tenberry loses it. They make history. He runs around the track. He goes absolutely crazy. He's rolling on the track. He's rolling on the high jump. I've never seen anybody happier than he was to win that Olympic medal. And of course, Varshim was ecstatic as well, celebrating with the few fans that were there and his his support team. And then the two share a great hug. I've never, I've just never seen anything better. If you haven't seen the Olympic moment of those two, you've got to take a look at it because I haven't seen anybody happier than Tamberi, and I haven't seen anybody more supportive than Barshim. I just think that whole Olympic moment really brought together the meaning of the Olympic Games. And you can see them here. You see that hug. You see them sharing the podium. They are great friends off, off the competition. Of course, when they get to the competition, they're fierce competitors. That's how they've gotten to this level of the Olympic Games. And they're both on the top step. They couldn't edge each other out. And they're both Olympic champions. And they've got their arm around each other on the podium a big embrace just I, I don't know so cool to see two olympic gold to see the way it played out if you haven't seen it take a look at the two olympic gold uh in the men's high jump at tokyo 2020 because i think and i said it at the time this was the moment of the games for the world but i think higher on my list is the moments of the games for canada and uh, a couple others as well no i mean you know what what, what you said is very true i mean it means certainly you know, you know what happened afterwards. <laughs> like, 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 you know, you just can't script a, a more moment that exemplifies sportsmanship than that. Like, like, that's like you search sportsmanship in the dictionary, and you'll get a photo of those two athletes and what they did. And and they also, I don't know if you saw, but like afterwards on like social media, like they were having like breakfast together, and it was like quite like quite the bromance like too. I mean, like you, you said that they were friends and, and for sure, but it was just, it was just very, very human, very human moment. And it, it was, it was, I think one of those busy mornings, like I think there was a lot going on that morning. I think it was the morning of the hundred meter final. And it was just, it was, it was just one of those really busy mornings, but to have that, you're right. It, it certainly is a, a beautiful human moment that, uh, that will live on forever in, in the Olympics. My number I, three. I think if you take a look at sort of the, the aspect of human moments of the Olympics, that really stood out because this was the first Olympics where social media was tremendous at the level that it has been. Every Olympics over the last 10 years, it's gotten more techno technologically advanced and more access for fans. But this was the first games with TikTok. And I know you're not big on TikTok. I spend a little too much time on the app, admittedly. But there were Sam Fricker and an Australian diver. He brought fans into the Olympic Village. He would, I wouldn't be surprised if he was one of those uh, Australians who got in trouble for stealing the Canadian fiberglass moose at a party. But he was definitely somebody who gave access to the Olymp Olympic Village in a way that's never been seen before. Even some of the Canadian women's soccer players, Jordan Heidema, Jesse Fleming, I know uh, both of us have that a little higher on our list. Um, but they gave tremendous access to the athlete experience as well. So for the first time, we saw the, uh, these athletes as humans, not just people who were playing sports on TV. And I think from a journalist's perspective, we've, we've always understood that, that these are humans and those are the stories that people want to hear and people want to read. But to actually have right from the athlete to the, the fans, that's a tremendous avenue that hasn't been there in the past. There's no third person and well, that might not be fantastic for our industry, 
it is certainly cool from a fan perspective to see those moments and see those Olympians as actual living, breathing people, not just somebody who can run 100 meters in less than 10 seconds. Well, anything that brings the fans closer to these athletes, and especially in the games where there were no there were no spectators, right? So, so you know, any way to bring fans closer is important. And I think social media for sure. And like, I think what, what really struck me these games, just like how many people are tuning in on social media from all over the world. Like the amount of people who interacted with me on, on Twitter during the games, it wasn't just North America. It was, it was global. So I think that's, that can't be understated as well. Just how it goes back to our earlier point about some of the smaller nations getting, you know, very, you know, you know, re- relevant attention during these games. Like it's just very key that social media can be that vehicle to, uh, to show those, those real human moments. My number three, Andre de Grasse. Um, wow. What a, what a Canadian moment. Um, DeGrasse came on the world scene. We all knew 2016 in Rio, the bromance with Usain Bolt. Look, Usain Bolt is a once in a generation. What he did, 2008, 2012, 2016, he sweeps. 100, 200, 4 by 1, 2008, 2012, 2016. Now, in 2016, though, here comes Andre DeGrasse. He wins bronze in the 100. He wins silver in the 200. And people are starting to, you know, see this guy. Is he sort of the, the, the successor once Bolt leaves? But then, unfortunately for DeGrasse, he had a serious hamstring injury. Um, you know, in, in between those years, 2016 to 2021, then a lot of people were starting to doubt whether DeGrasse would get back to that level, get back to that level that we saw in 2016. But there was a lot of attention on a lot of different runners coming into these Olympics. Noah Lyles, who I profiled for the undefeated, Trayvon Bromel, Arian Knighton. A lot of the Americans, a lot, a lot of the, you know, the, there was a lot of attention on those. And the big question was, who was going to replace Bolt? Now Bolt is gone. So it feels like a free-for-all to try to fill that void. And Donovan Bailey made a point on the CBC broadcast that Andre DeGrasse at a lot of the events leading up to the Olympics was playing possum. Sure, he was trying. Sure, he was trying to get into form. But we didn't really see that next gear that Andre DeGrasse could really achieve. And my goodness, Ben, 100-meter final, You went, I told you it's the banner event. It, 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 you know, it, 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 the banner event. Get, get chills thinking about it, as you can tell. He's dead last 25 meters in. He bolts to get to third place, clocking at a maximum speed of almost 42 kilometers an hour to get the bronze medal. Then the 200. In a stacked field, Benarek, Lyles, Knighton, Aaron Brown, Andre DeGrasse, he gets that middle lane, and he just, you know, that that turn for home, just an incredible setting, a new Canadian record, 1962. And then you said it earlier, back with the 4 by one that he's fifth. He's fifth on the anchor leg, getting that baton, and he just you know, goes into that zone where he just kicks it to another gear to get the bronze medal. He has six medals in all of his Olympic races. He's gotten on the podium. 
Andre DeGrasse, he, he just delivers in the biggest moments. And, and those, you know, that's what we, that's what we love. I mean, like that's for, for fans and for media as well. I mean, when we're writing on this and reporting on this, athletes delivering in the biggest moments, that's what the Olympics are all about. And, and, and Andre DeGrasse has exemplified that the last two Olympics. You, you talk about the 100 meters being the banner event of the Olympics. And I think we can definitely see that in the way that the Olympics and the organizing committee puts on the show of the 100 meters. It's really the only race where they, they turn the lights down to set the mood. They turn up the, the heartbeat in the stadium. That was a constant throughout the games, playing an actual bum, 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 throughout the stadium in tense moments. I, I enjoyed that. It added a, an element of excitement to it. But they, ha- they dim the lights. They turn the, the lights on and put the country's flags on the lanes, a spotlight on the, each athlete. It's already boiling hot. I can't imagine how much heat the athletes would have been going through when a spotlight is on them. But the entire world, billions of people watching eight men run down a track. Ten seconds, less than that. And it is the banner event of the Olympics. So cool. So cool to see Canadians have success on that. And Sean Fitzgerald of The Athletic suggested that there should be a DeGrasse school. We've seen schools after sprinters before. There's Bill Crothers uh, in the GTA. And if we're going to name a school after DeGrasse, it should be DeGrasse Junior High, right? <laughs> of course. Of course. We got to throw in the puns. We got to throw in the puns. I mean, you know, there's Penny Lane, there's DeGrasse High. I mean, like, come on. It's, it's perfect. Yeah, just incredible moments from, from Canadian athletes all around. Uh, Penny Alexiak and Andre DeGrasse, they've raced in two Olympic Games, and they're some of the best athletes that Canada has ever seen. So very, very impressive. But if I'm going to go to my second, uh, my penultimate point, it's going to be Simone Biles and Ellie Black, for that matter. Two athletes who faced tremendous adversity in these games and came back to put on tremendous performances. Ellie Black of Canada, a former Dalhousie University student. She finished off the podium, but after an ankle injury, she was able to come back into the beam final and impress Canadians and showed why she is the premier gymnast in this country. But Simone Biles, tremendous, tremendous story. She had mental blocks. She had what is called the twisties, which sounds like a little light thing, but is not. It's very dangerous uh, to go through as a gymnast. I know a, a few gymnasts that I spoke to They've actually suffered with that and that ended their careers. And for Simone Biles to not only suffer that, but to suffer the social blowback that she had from having the twisties, having mental blocks, pulling out of Olympic finals, and to be able to come back and get a podium, that just shows how, how tremendous an athlete she is. And it was inspiring to, to me as somebody who struggled with mental health as well, to see somebody come back from such a stressful moment, to come back from such doubt and to have such success on the global stage with billions, millions of eyes on her. And I think Simone Biles putting mental health at the core of the conversation, especially these days when the world is still enthralled in a pandemic and so many people are going through mental health issues. She put it at the core of the Olympic conversation, the biggest stage. And in the US, the, the gymnastics competitions are the biggest events on NBC. They spend a tremendous amount of time on the the gymnastic events and Simone Biles became the biggest story of the Olympics for a few days and she showed up when she came back and that was just inspiring impressive uh, and shows how much of a legend and goat 
that she is greatest of all time, Simone Biles. That's also my number two as well. And I think for, for me, what was just so impressive was just the courage, like for her to, you know, speak in a press conference, just speak very openly about the struggles, the, the mental blocks, the twisties, but also just the burden of an entire nation on your shoulders. And that's what she felt entering these games. And, and, and I think to add even further context, you know, she, she had to deal with a lot of trauma after the, the Larry Nasser gymnastics scandal. Which, which rocked USA Gymnastics. And she, you know, you know, made the decision to keep competing, representing USA Gymnastics to try to make it a better institution, frankly, because frankly, it, it was the opposite of that after that scandal. But I think what it showed going forward is the importance, I think, for just supporting athletes who, who are using, you know, who are going through challenges. Just like an athlete who has an ankle injury and can't compete. I mean, an athlete, you know, his mental health is so, so vital. And oftentimes, we've talked about this off the air, the perception by fans of athletes is unfair. They treat these athletes like they're superhuman, that they can do, you know, anything they, you know, they, that they're, on, you know, godly figures, that anything that, that goes to them, they can just brush off. Athletes are human beings. They're human beings just like you and me, Ben. Only they can do, you know, skills that, that not many people can do. So it's important to treat these athletes like they are human beings. And it, and it wasn't just Simone Biles at these Olympics. We saw Noah Lyles, after his bronze medal, speak openly about his depression going through the pandemic. Canadian Alicia Newman, after a disappointing result in the pole vault, she took to Instagram and just, you know, really, you know, poured her heart out in terms of the struggles that she's been going through. So I think we're going to see this from now on. And, and, and I just hope that this Olympics is the watershed moment where athlete mental health is accepted and supported and that leagues and, and various events provide those accommodations to those athletes when they need it. And that's what Michael Phelps, 28-time Olympian, Olympic medalist, talked about on NBC. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you, you watch Michael Phelps' clip because he was very passionate about this. And he's obviously gone through a lot of mental health struggles, similar to Simone Biles having the weight of the nation on his shoulder. So a very important moment. I hope that it's not the last you know, time we, we talk about this because it's very, very important that I know sometimes with topics that they, that they have a lot of popularity at the Olympics and then they fizzle. I hope that this is just the watershed moment and the momentum continues to support athlete mental health. I certainly hope so as well. And there's a lot of good things that are happening, especially in Canada in terms of supporting athletes, uh, both at the student athlete level and university sports, but all the way up to the Olympic athlete, athlete level and the professional level as well. So there's certainly growth in this area, but there's a long way to go. Uh, and I think it's getting there, but there's a long, long way to go to have mental health be considered equal to a broken leg or even worse. Um, so it's getting there, but a lot of work to go. I do hope that these Olympics were a bit of a watershed moment and Simone Biles pulling out of the Olympics, coming back, having that tremendous success, showing that it's not a weakness to be mentally ill or have mental struggles. 
uh, is just tremendous. Now, from that, we move on to our number one. And you and I both have the same number one. The Canadian national soccer team winning the gold medal in the women's football tournament. Just tremendous. So I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you open with it because I don't know. Christine Sinclair, Olympic gold medalist. The Canadian women's national team won an Olympic gold medal. It's the first major tournament win in, in this country. And we're three days after and I'm still speechless. So I'll let you go first. Well, I'll try to provide some context, but I think it really starts, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to go back to the 2011 FIFA Women's World Cup. They didn't win a game, right, Ben? At that, They World didn't win Cup. a single game at that tournament, no. They did not win a single game. And now, with, like, think about that. Like, this is Canada, right? This is a team that has Christine Sinclair, one of the best players in the world, and not win a single game. And there was a lot of disappointment. And like I think there was a lot of chatter and 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 talk about does this team ever have it? Like, can this team ever get on the podium? Can this team ever, you know, achieve success on the international level? Then 2012, the Olympics. Obviously, that's the moment where a lot of Canadians they still talk about, right? That semifinal at Old Trafford against the Americans, the robbed call, still. Before 2021, Ben, I was still, you know, you know, getting trying to get over it because it was a really bad call. But I think the silver lining of that was at least they got a medal. Like, I mean, after the real disappointment in 2011, they got a medal on a podium. So there was glimmer, there was light at the end of the tunnel that they could get something. It then started to to build, and but again. They just, you know, they lost, you know, they lost to good teams. They just couldn't, you know, get to that top pedestal at an international event until Tokyo 2021. And and yeah, I mean, I mean, look, these Olympics, I mean, think about it. The, the protocols that these athletes have had to go had to go through to get to Urban California where they train, the hard decisions that they had to make in terms of roster selection, the chatter about can they you know, get back to the podium. And this felt like, and you and I talking about this on off, off the air, sort of a now or never moment for this program. Like, can they do it? Now or never moment for head coach Bev Priestman and a lot of the, the players on this team. But my goodness, did they deliver. And, and what I love about this team is it's it's a mixture of, the, the you know, the old generation, you know, the, the, the veteran generation, if you will, and Christine Sinclair and, players like Stephanie Labe, but then the younger generation as well who are coming up and are going to do incredible things as well. And wow, I mean, to think, I mean, let's just go back to start a tournament, Ben, that game against Japan. We figured Stephanie Labe might be hurt, like like injured, gone, out of the tournament, shoulder injury, done. But then she comes, you know, she misses a game, she comes back. You didn't well, have that. You, you, you skipped over a part there. She got hurt. Then she stopped the penalty against the host country yes. and Canada goes on to, to tie that game. And that was just the start of a, that was the first chapter in the long, long, long novel that is Stephanie LeBay penalty stop shots, because she is one of the best penalty stoppers in the entire world period. There's no better person on penalty kicks than Stephanie LeBay was at these Olympics. But I even want to go a little before the Olympics, if you go back to the friendlies a month before the Olympics, Canada could not score 
for their life. Canada could not score if everything depended on it. And Christine Sinclair looked slow. Jesse Fleming looked lost. Uh, everybody just looked lackluster. And I thought, okay, maybe after Kenneth Heiner Moeller, this Bev Priestman idea, maybe this isn't working. Maybe this Canadian team is probably going to fizzle out of the Olympics in the group stage. Maybe they make the quarterfinal. But they managed to win the gold medal. Now, I do have to point this out. The goal scoring was not fixed. The Canadian team is world champions, Olympic champions, but they are not a Goliath team by any means. I would still say that the the U.S. team and the Brazilian team are probably better than Team Canada because Canada didn't score a goal in the knockout stage uh, from open play. They got VAR. I would almost give a gold medal to VAR, the little TV on the sidelines, uh, because Canada got so lucky with that. Um, I posted a graphic after Canada won the gold medal, and I put VAR, the VAR logo in that, because VAR, video assistant refereeing, was so critical to Canada's win uh, at these Olympic Games. But if Canada's going to have sustainable success and potentially take a run at a World Cup, a World Cup, you need open play scoring. You're not getting to a World Cup trophy without scoring from open play. You're not going to get penalties so easily. And in the Olympics, you can sort of squeeze your way through as they did. Um, but something's going to have to give, whether that's Jesse Fleming, whether that's Janine Becky, whether that's Julia Grosso and Jordan Haitema taking another step, something's going to have to give because this Canadian team needs goals and they got the gold without the goals, but they were somewhat lucky to do it. But Ben, even though they were lucky to do it, Canadians they will did take it. it. They did it. Exactly. They did it. And, and they beat Brazil in penalties. I think, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I think the semifinal against the Americans, I think it's even bigger now that they had the gold. Just think about the context of nine years, which is an exorcism type of moment that just to, to finally avenge nine years ago. And then that gold medal game, I mean, look, the stress. I mean, it was it was stressful. I mean, it was you know, as tense as it comes. And then, you know, that first half, it did not look great. And then, like you said, the VAR to give, you know, Jesse Fleming the tying goal. And then those penalties, those were shades of that England-Italy Euro final in terms of execution. But, man, did Stephanie Labe show up and then for Grasso to get the the final one. But just an incredible, but the, the, the one that I think people you know, sometimes overlook, that Rose penalty, just to keep them alive, was incredible too, to tie it. Like that that corner one was just incredible. And like the fact that Sweden had the Olympic gold on the captain's foot, misses it. Oh, it's like, like you couldn't script it any better. Like you could, you could pitch this story to a Hollywood producer and they would laugh at you in terms of like this, like in terms of this being real, but it's real. It happened. I think the one thing I'll say before I let you you finish is five million Canadians on television at eight in the morning, Eastern time, 5 a.m. Pacific time, tuned in to the gold medal game. And that's excluding digital streams. Wow, incredible. It's just incredible what this Canadian team did and there's history all around in every part of this roster. I don't know if it was the most penalty stops in one tournament, but Stephanie LeBay probably has her hand in the, in the pod for that. 
Uh, Christian Sinclair, legend of the game, 187 international goals, more than Ronaldo, more than Messi, more than any male player, more than Abby Wambach on the woman's side. And she finally has her Olympic crown, her crowning moment at the Olympics. It could be the capstone to her career. When she subbed off in the, I think it was the 77th minute, and Jordan Heitema came on the field, I thought that might be it for Christine Sinclair. It just seemed too perfect, especially if Canada had gone on to win the gold medal, which they did. It just seemed like that was going to be it for Christine Sinclair. And I think the thought crossed her mind as well, because if you look at the photos, if you look at that game again, she was in tears when she came off that field in the final. And I think it crossed her mind that if they lost, this might never happen. She might never win a gold cup or gold medal or a world cup. Gold Cup, of course, the, the men's tournament. The, the men have done extremely well as well. Um, but I think that if Canada, if Deanne Rose didn't score, if Steph LeBay didn't show up, maybe this is the end of Christine Sinclair. It was just never going to happen for her, and she was just going to retire after this. But a gold medal, she's going to continue with Canada. Whether she has another major tournament in her, I don't know. She wasn't exceptional at these Olympics. Yes, she scored in the opening game against Japan, which was – fantastic to see her actually get an Olympic goal, but I don't, I don't know whether she really has a place in this team in terms of playing level. I think there's other players you can go to for playing level. I do think she has a place in this team as long as she plays just because of who she is, 187 international goals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if Canada hadn't won that gold medal, I don't know whether Christine Sinclair continues with the Canadian national team. Now, if you take a look at 10 years ago, the Canadian women's soccer team wasn't very good. And the Canadian men's national team was one of the worst in the world. This summer, in the span of a few weeks, the Canadian men's national team nearly beat Mexico in the CONCACAF Gold Cup that was going on at the same time in the Olympics, was on a pay streaming plat platform, so didn't get as much attention. But they went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Mexico and only lost 2-1 in the ninth minute of added time. That's a Canadian team that didn't have Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies. Then a few weeks later, the Canadian women's national team win Olympic gold in Tokyo. It's been a tremendous little while for Canadian soccer. It could get better if Canada manages to qualify for the World Cup later this year uh, on the men's side. So there's so many fantastic moments in Canadian soccer and the Canadian women's national team winning the women's football gold is just exceptional. And I could go on and on and on. One last thing I do want to point out is, is Quinn became the first transgender and non-binary person to win an Olympic medal, and they were fantastic throughout the entire tournament. They were a linchpin in the Canadian midfield. They made sure Canada was fantastic defensively, transitioned well offensively, and did not concede in those final moments. So Quinn, exceptional. Congratulations to them. Uh, and they made history. The one last thing I'll say before, before we wrap up is this, is that I really hope when we look maybe 10 20 years down the road where look, Canada soccer is even more popular than it is now. We hopefully have a professional women's soccer team in Canada. The athletes want it. Let's, you know, let's make it happen. Hopefully it does happen. But this is the moment. This was sort of like the big moment that, that, that people talk about the, 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 where were you moment from a fan perspective, but also, you know, historical moment from, you know, how Canada soccer really, you know, became, you know, even more influential um, as an institution in this country. And, and 
look, I mean, it, it's, you know, maybe it's prisoner of the moment for me, Ben, but look, I mean, Vancouver 2010 ended with just, you know, a huge euphoria with, with Sidney Crosby's golden goal. And, you know, social media wasn't as big back then. But, you know, what, what I saw on social media early in the morning on Friday to see just the country come together and to see Canadian women's soccer make history, just, just the popularity, just like the, like the euphoria on the timeline on Twitter. It, it, was, it, it was phenomenal. I mean, I, I don't think there was a dry eye, Ben, in coast to coast to coast in Canada. There certainly, certainly wasn't a dry eye for me. I, I tried to hold it together for the first little while. I sent out the tweet that Canada had won. But yeah, I, I sat there and, and I was in tears, man. I can't believe that this team, they, they did it. They won an Olympic gold medal in the women's football tournament. Uh, I first saw this team when they were trying to qualify for the London 2012 Olympics. They, that qualifying tournament, the CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tournament was in Vancouver. And I went to nearly every game, whether it was Canada versus Haiti, Canada versus Cuba. I was there for, for those moments. and. That was Rianne Wilkinson. That was Diana Matheson. That was Kristen Sinclair, Karina LeBlanc, and Aaron McLeod, Sophie Schmidt. I could go on and on about that team. They managed to capture a bronze medal in, in London. They did it again in Rio, and then in Tokyo, it's gold. I, I it, it, it hit home for me that, that they had actually won that medal. It's just one of the best moments in Canadian sporting history. I know that uh, Vancouver podcast, Sakaris and Price, they ran a poll question a few days ago when the Canadian woman won that medal. And it was, what's the biggest sports team win in Canadian history? And it had a, a few games on it. It was the 2002 uh, Canadian women's Olympic gold in women's hockey. The first time Canadian women won Olympic gold in, in hockey. And then it also had the 2010 Crosby gold that we've talked about at length on this podcast already. It had the 1972 summit series against the Soviet union and Canada winning that. But it also had the, the soccer gold medal from, from last Friday. And I honestly think that the soccer gold medal from last Friday is one of, if not the biggest and best Canadian moments in sport history. Well, Ben, like the Olympics, flame being extinguished, this podcast episode is coming to an end. But what I will say is this, the moments that we've shared, these are just a handful. There are tons and tons of moments and i think that's what makes these olympic games so spectacular like we said way off the top they're gonna be ones that we will remember for quite some time but luckily 128 days from now the paralympics are happening and and i really hope that canadians do pay attention because these athletes have worked very hard during you know like the olympians some very difficult conditions during the pandemic and what they are going to accomplish in Tokyo is absolutely incredible. August 24th, the Paralympics get underway. And then in six months, Ben, in February, Beijing 2022, where more uh, Olympic history will be made. So Ben Steiner, I really appreciate you coming on the We Sports Chronicles podcast to break down the Tokyo 2020 Olympics that are over. Get some sleep, man. But I really appreciate you coming on. It was, it was a really fun conversation. Yeah, the Olympic schedule tonight is pretty bare. It's men's women's trans non-binary sleeping i think that's probably starting at around 11 30 p.m uh tune in i won't be broadcasting i won't be writing i won't be tweeting 
um, but I will definitely be taking part. So uh, it's been a pleasure to cover these Olympic Games, uh, not only for all of everybody on Twitter, not only for Waking the Red or Between the Sticks for 49, uh, but to cover them uh, for the CBC and with you as well. Uh, I know we exchanged a lot of different texts and messages at around 4.30 in the morning on various events through these games. So it's been a pleasure to cover these Olympic Games, the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games. We're not over. Both of us will be back for Beijing 2022. We'll be around for the, the Paralympics as well. So thank you, Lucas, for inviting me on. And I can't wait for future appearances as well.